This is a podcast slidecast for the AP European History students at Bozeman High School. My name is Dave Butt. Students, this podcast slidecast is going to be the first in our series about Eastern absolutism. Um, this first will be looking at the characteristics. It's over an, uh, kind of an overview of what's happening in Eastern Europe as, the, uh, as Western Europe is sort of developing its absolutism and how absolutism takes shape and form inside of Eastern Europe. Um, so this will basically just be an overview, and then we'll talk a little bit about serfdom near the end of this as well. Um, so a little bit about Eastern European absolutism. And one thing that we want to remember is this is where the hop rap comes in. Um, a good way to remember this is basically what we're dealing with is three aging empires. You have the decline of the Holy Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and the Polish Kingdom. Um, those three declining empires are actually going to lead to the rise of Russia, Austria, and Prussia. We'll talk more in depth about the rise of each one of those things in a bit. Um, but first of all, let's talk about sort of why these three empires are actually falling. Starting with the Holy Roman Empire, we know a lot about what's happening with the Holy Roman Empire right now. Um, the religious divisions uh, that the Reformation has caused has left a, a split in the German in Germany um, among Catholic, uh, Catholic, Lutherans, and Calvinist princes. Um, the, that Reformation, the religious wars, all of that has left sort of the countryside divided and, um, some, and destroyed in certain areas. Uh, so all of that there, all of those three, or basically you're dealing with those religious divisions are really creating a, a, a decline in the power and prestige of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, the Ottoman Empire, uh, what you need to keep in mind about the Ottoman Empire is sort of how it views itself, um, how it's created, and how it views itself inside of Europe. Uh, basically, the Ottoman Empire is an expansionist empire. Uh, the, the idea behind it is that... Um, as the empire grows, it expands. Um, it gets more and more support and get more and more power from all of its uh, areas that it conquers. Um, but it can't maintain all these positions, uh, all its possessions in Eastern Europe. Uh, the Balkans, in particular, um, are going to be incredibly difficult to contain uh, and and maintain because of Austrian and Russian expansion. Um, the Sultan has, has absolute power inside of the Ottoman Empire, um, and then. By 1516, the decline in Western expansion uh, resulted in the gradual disintegration of the empire. And so what you get is basically this uh, this decline of um, Ottoman influence inside of the area. Uh, a little bit of background about the Sultan, who this person is, or who the Sultan is at this time. Um, Suleiman the Magnificent, um, his rule is 1520 to 1566. Uh, he is probably one of the most powerful rulers uh, in the world during the 16th century. Uh, simply because of the area that he manages to control uh, and influence. Um, he's almost going to conquer Austria in 1529. He's going to take over Belgrade, which is Serbia, um, about half of Eastern Europe, including the Balkan territories, uh, and parts of southern Russia. So this area, the, uh, the Ottoman Empire has expanded itself into southern Europe. Um, you can kind of see it on the map in the podcast where it kind of stands and where it hits. You can see that it has predominantly the control of the Black Sea coast. Um, what you're going to get is that, or the way that the system actually works as far as the Ottoman Empire is controlled, is that you get highly talented Christian children um, from the conquered princes are going to be incorporated either into the Ottoman's Ottoman the Ottoman Empire's bureaucracy or into um, uh, the Turkish army, and they're going to be called the Janissary Corps. So they're going to be the Christian slaves who are actually selected 
um, for the Turkish army because they're they're not selected for the bureaucracy. But as you can imagine, this this expansion is conquering territory. What they do is they actually require a tax on the people that they conquer, and that tax is basically the 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 sons of the the families that they have conquered. Um, and those sons either end up in the bureaucracy or inside of the Janissary corpse. Um, what you get is that the Ottoman Empire is actually fairly tolerant regarding religion of the conquered provinces. It's kind of like the Roman Empire almost, where they go into these areas, they have indirect control, they let a lot of these areas continue with their own ideals, um, a lot of their own uh, beliefs, but they will usually put a, a someone at least in, in control um, of those areas. Um, so that's kind of what you get as far as the Ottoman Empire. But as you can imagine, if it's an expansionist empire and it stops expanding, then it, it loses its support base. It loses its, it loses its uh, ability to continue to expand. Um, the last of the hop is the is Poland. Um, the one thing to remember is that Poland has a liberium veto, um, or librum veto. What that basically means is that the Polish parliament cannot do anything unless it is unanimous. Um, so any changes that are made have to be unanimous. Uh, and basically what you've done is that nothing can actually get done that's actually going to strengthen the kingdom. So you get a, prev uh, a, a, a prevalently weak kingdom inside of Eastern Europe, which is going to be Poland, um, because of that vote. Uh, Russia and Prussia are going to encourage certain members um, of the parliament to actually invoke this veto, the Liberium veto. Um, and what they do basically is they make it so that Russia and Pol or Russia and Prussia actually get members to invoke this and stop Poland from actually making it. Uh, to give you an idea of what that means, by 1800, Poland's going to exist uh, is going to cease to exist as a sovereign state. Um, it's going to be carved up by Austria, Prussia, and Russia. Um, so we'll take a little bit of different. Uh, we'll take a little bit of look as to how um, that gives you a good uh, example of what um, the the Asian empires. Uh, in Eastern Europe, look like. Um, we'll give you. A, 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 I'll talk a little bit here about um, what, a, how absolutism in Eastern Europe differs from French absolutism. The number one thing to remember is that Eastern European absolutism is based on powerful nobility, uh, also a weak middle class, and the oppressed peasantry composed of serfs. So all three of those components—the powerful nobility, the weak middle class, and the peasantry and the and the the oppressed peasantry composed of serfs all lead to a distinct form of absolutism that historians usually call Eastern absolutism. Um, whereas in France, the nobles' power had been limited. Um, there was a middle class, uh, and that middle class was actually relatively strong. And then the peasants, realistically, are generally, in, well, in comparison to Eastern Europe, are generally free from serfdom. Um, Louis XIV has actually built French absolutism upon the foundations of well-developed medieval monarchy. Uh, and strong royal bureaucracy. So those 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 ideals that Louis builds on are in place before he finds them there, or before he comes into power. Um, and the French people understand how that system of government, that system of hierarchy, actually works. Uh, you don't see that long-standing strong central kingdom in Eastern, or, or strong strong central monarch in Eastern Europe. Um, you don't have that history of it, so it's not as ingrained inside the culture. Uh, the last major thing as far as the development of Eastern absolutism and how it sort of comes into um, existence is this idea that the threat of war uh, with Europe and Asia invaders uh, are going to motivate the Eastern European monarchs to actually try and consolidate their power. Nations actually going to lead to a reduction in noble power. Um, 
but what you're going to see is that although the nobles are giving up power as far as uh, the 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 larger picture of the state, the nobles actually get a lot more power over the peasantry, and so that's where you get this other idea that the oppressed serfs actually um, help to create uh, Eastern absolutism. Um, one of the ways that they, uh, the methods that they actually gain, or that the leaders, these these um, monarchs, the Eastern European monarchs, actually gain uh, ways to gain absolute power, um, is that the kings are basically going to impose a collection of permanent taxes without the consent of their uh, their subjects. Uh, states are going to maintain permanent standing armies. States are going to conduct relations with other states as they pleased. Um, so those three sort of ideas is what you see characteristic of Eastern absolutism. Uh, the maintaining the permanent standing army is going to be a, a, a huge impact upon that. And so Eastern uh, absolutism in Eastern Europe is actually going to reach its height underneath Peter the Great of Russia. Um, and then what you see is absolutism in Prussia, though, uh, was stronger than in Austria. So it's kind of a, a digression here. Its height is going to be in Russia. Um, absolutism in Prussia is going to be stronger than that of Austria. And that kind of comes back to the ideas of how influential they have been inside of, the, inside of Western Europe. Um, I talk a little bit about serfdom here um, and how, e how that actually affects Eastern European absolutism. Uh, after about 1300, the lords in Eastern Europe um, are going to revive serfdom uh, to combat increasing economic challenges, and we'll talk a little bit about what those are here in a second, but um, the areas that, the, that this is actually going to affect, that serfdom is going to come back into fruition, is going to be Bohemia, Silesia, Hungary, Eastern Germany, Poland, Lithuania, and Russia. Um, the, the drop in the population in the 14th century is going to create tremendous labor shortages uh, and hard times for the nobles. That's going to be one of the reasons as to why they need, uh, or one of the economic challenges they're facing. Um, the lords are also going to demand that the kings and princes issue laws restricting the, or eliminating the rights of the peasants to move freely. Uh, and this is where you get the, the ideas of like hereditary subjugation kind of coming into fruition. Um, by 1500, Prussian territories and laws requiring runaway peasants to be hunted down and returned to the lords. Um, laws uh, were passed that froze peasants to the social class. So you can say, imagine that as this the, as this demand for labor increases, you want a more steady supply of labor. Um, and what these lords demand of their absolute or demand of their kings um, is that they get the right to control these serfs forever, basically. Um, lords are going to confiscate peasant lands uh, and impose heavier le uh, labor obligations. And so what you get is basically lords consolidating their own lands. Um, and you're also going to get a legal system that's monopolized by the local lord. Uh, Non-serf peasants, if you were managed to not necessarily be bound to the, to the land at all, then you'd become part of the robot. Uh, and it, that's basically what what that is, is it's going to be peasants that aren't bound to a land or aren't bound to a lord are required to work um, three or four days without pay per week uh, for their local lord. It could be anything, building bridges, uh, helping out with irrigation, whatever it might be. Um, so serfdom, the consolidation of serfdom between 1500 and 1650, uh, what you get is hereditary serfdom uh, is going to be reestablished in Poland and Russia and Prussia by the mid-17th century. Um, Poland nobles uh, are going to gain complete control of their peasants in 1574 and can actually impose the death penalties on serfs whenever they wish. So basically, if they just chose to make this person die, they could, uh, and it would be no repercussions whatsoever. 1694, the Russian Tsar is actually going to rescind the nine-year term limit on runaway serfs. Um, basically, before this, if you, as a noble, found another noble serf that had run away, uh, if it was 
past nine years you did not have to return that serf and now what the russians are is actually going to revoke that and say that even if you find the noble you're going to have to return them um or even if you find the peasant or the serf you're going to have to return them to the to his rightful noble what you see here is that the growth of the estate agriculture uh during this period is going to be increasing tremendously um food prices are going to increase due to the influx of gold and silver from the americas Surpluses of wheat and timber are going to be sold to big foreign merchants who export them uh, to feed the wealthier West. You can see that from the PowerPoint. Uh, if you get on the slide cache, you can actually see that uh, that most of the food that's being grown in Eastern Europe is actually being shipped to the West. That actually helps to maintain the power and status of the nobles and keep the serfdom in check. Um, so the question becomes, is why serfdom in Eastern Europe and not Western Europe? Um, and what you see is it's not just economic. Your book, uh, McKay, mentions that as well. It's not... Uh, just the economic necessity. Um, even though you do have a labor shortage inside of the Black Death, uh, the resulting... Uh, um, that both East and West are affected by the Black Death, and what you get is actually, uh, in the West, the the labor shortage actually helps the standard of living, uh, helps people increase their standard of living, and so you can't claim that it's just this labor shortage that increases the... Um, the, the control that the nobles have over their serfs in Eastern Europe. What you get really is that uh, it's going to be political reasons. Um, you're going to see that the supremacy of the noble and the landlords are basically going to be the reason that you're going to get development of serfdom or the resurgence of serfdom in Eastern Europe. Um, most kings are basically, how they view themselves, are first among equals of the noble classes uh, and directly benefit from serfdom. So even the kings themselves have serfs and they're going to benefit from that. Uh, Therefore, they're going to listen to other people of their social rank that want them to continue the serfdom practice. Um, Eastern lords are actually going to have more political power than in the West. Monarchs needed the nobles in East. Uh, they needed to be able to control these vast areas um, of peasants that are all, that are greatly spread out. Um, and in addition to that, you're going to have constant warfare in Eastern Europe and political chaos, uh, which results in the noble and landlord, of course, uh, class increasing the political power at the expense of the monarchs. Um, weak Eastern kings uh, that have little control over landlord the landlord policies aimed at the peasants. Um, strong sovereign kings in Eastern Europe are not going to be in place until 1650. So you're not going to have a centralized sort of system of government that is going to require people to uh, not have serfs or to have serfs. It's just going to be noble by noble discretion. Um, peasants are actually weaker uh, politically than in the West. Uh, you're not going to see any uprisings. You're not going to see um, any sort of peasant solidarity in the in the East, uh, as you would see inside of Western Europe, inside of some of the peasant uprisings, um, like the peasant revolts of Germany in 1525. Uh, you don't see that solidarity in Eastern Europe. Um, landlords are going to undermine medieval privileges of towns and the power of the urban classes. Um, the population of towns uh, is significantly smaller and the importance of urban middle class is significantly declined. Um, so those are the major reasons as to why serfdom is established or reestablished in Eastern Europe uh, and not in Western Europe. And that's kind of an overview of Eastern European absolutism. And you've got to keep those things in mind when we start to go in and talk about the rise of the rap, which is what we'll talk about uh, with the next podcast, which will be Austria uh, and Prussia. Thank you for your time, and I hope you find this uh, helpful.